0: Welcome in to the DNBR Buffs podcast presented by the uh, American Raptors. I'm Henry Chisholm, and uh, I bet you know what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're talking about the new offensive coordinator at Colorado, Mike Sanford. Um, here's the deal. Um, I mean, it's not a home run hire, right? Like, it's it's not like it's Lincoln Riley walking through those doors. Uh, but that was never really an option um because lincoln riley is a little bit preoccupied the thing is you know every offensive coordinator that you hire there's a reason why he's not a head coach there's a reason why he's not a bunch of different things and uh i think that i mean if you guys are on twitter you've probably seen a very negative reaction and i agree that like this is not the hire where you say oh yeah this is this is great this is ideal this is everything we could have hoped for but Again, it's Colorado. The offense is what it was. The quarterback play was what it was. The offensive line was what it was. And if you thought that you were going to poach somebody who was like, "Ah, I don't know, do I I choose Notre Dame or do I choose Colorado? Like, that's not how it's going to work. And I also think that this is probably about what we should have expected. I I don't think that the outrage – is totally necessary. I think that it's all a, a bit much. I don't think that this is the end of the world. I think that this is a coach who does have some good ideas. And uh I also think that my role right now is to talk a lot of you off the edge because it seems like, or sorry, the ledge. Talk you off the ledge. Yeah, there we go. Um it seems like a lot of you are on the ledge. And maybe I don't mean you in particular, whoever you are listening to this. But if not you, then probably the next person who is listening to it. Because the reaction was overwhelmingly negative um, for those who haven't seen. Uh, very, very, very negative. And we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about why I think that there's some reason for hope. And um, that's the plan for today. Actually, the original plan for today was to come in here do the, the bets show with Andre, and then head up to Boulder and watch that basketball game. And uh, that was going to be just a nice, fun day. I was going to get some pizza up in Boulder, too. I was pretty excited about it. Instead, about four minutes before the uh, the betting show started, I got the email saying that this happened. And about one minute before the show started... I opened my email and saw that email. So it was kind of like a little frantic time. Went through the betting show. Uh, Wrote like a quick thing, obviously, on hiring Mike Sanford. Just something to throw up on the website. Just a little news story. From there, it's been um, a lot of reading. A lot of uh, watching old games. Um, Not even... I mean, the, the, the one that you guys might be able to relate to... Uh, There was this game in September that you might remember, a a game where uh, Minnesota came to Boulder and basically did – actually, I can't even say they did whatever they wanted to the Buffs. It was like a 13-0 game in the third quarter, and Colorado did have a chance to make a play. Um, But, you know, it wound up being a 30-0 game, and Colorado never did anything offensively that made you think that it was going to to be much else. Um, So I've got to rewatch that game. I got to uh, watch some other film. I got to read about um, all sorts of different things. Um, Mike Sanford himself, of course. Um, And we can kind of run through his coaching tree now, I guess. Um, For those who don't know Mike Sanford, um, he's he's first of all a 39-year-old coach. He'll be 40 in February. He has just kind of an incredible amount of experience for somebody that young. Um, first real break was with Stanford in 2011. That was David Shaw's first season as their head coach. He's the running backs coach. The next year he gets promoted. So now he's running backs coach and recruiting coordinator. Uh, the year after that he switches over, he he continues to be recruiting coordinator, but he's also the quarterbacks coach and the wide receivers coach. And so, in those three years, obviously, working under David Shaw, went back, watched just a little bit of David Shaw stuff um, and just kind of what that offense was. I think, I mean, we all kind of know what that offense was. Very pro style, power run, uh, similar to, to what's happened at a bunch of the other stops that Mike Sanford has made. Um, but I watched some of that. Uh, from there, Mike Sanford went to Boise State. So, remember, he was quarterback, wide receiver coach, recruiting coordinator. Well, he gets offered a promotion, really, uh, from Boise State saying, we can make you our offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach. Um, that was the first year after Chris Peterson. So, that was Brian Harson um, who was the head coach there. Again, not that much really changed stylistically. Again, it's a power running sort of pro style offense. From there, um, he actually the next year 2015 he gets offered another job and it's a better job from notre dame he's the offensive coordinator at notre dame he's the quarterback's coach at notre Dame. they go on to win 10 games they finish ranked in the top 10 a very successful season the next year was probably notre dame's worst season in a long time and he wound up being um what they were four and eight i believe uh, so, so disappointing for sure. Still, he gets offered a head coaching job. He goes to Western Kentucky. He's there in 2017 and 2018. Um, gets fired after the 2018 season because the team struggled. Um, I think that there's definitely some stats you look at in his past. And we'll, we'll actually save those for a second. Just wrap this up. Uh, after he gets fired, goes to Utah State. He's the offensive coordinator, quarterbacks coach there. Uh, from there, he goes to Minnesota. Minnesota. Um, where he's, again, the offensive coordinator, quarterback's coach. Um, a couple good seasons there, but he gets fired this year, a few weeks ago, and now he's the offensive coordinator at Colorado. So there's there's your background. He uh, He's made a bunch of different stops. You'll see, again, this is – I feel like my role is to kind of talk you guys off the ledge just based on what I've seen, and we're going to start with this. One of the things that I've seen a lot on Twitter is that – he hasn't stayed anything for very or anywhere for very long, and that's a big problem. And here's what I'll say. Yes, Carl Durrell did say just a couple days ago he's looking for somebody who will stick around, that he doesn't want a repeat of what happened at UCLA when they went to the Rose Bowl, I believe, but six of his nine assistants left. You know, Tom Cable left. Um, Jane Orvell left. Um, there's some other big names there as well. He wants somebody who will stick around. And to that point, yes, seeing that this guy has moved around quite a bit, not a great sign. But it is worth noting that he's been fired twice. He was fired at Western Kentucky, and he was fired for good reason. They had a winning record six straight seasons. Um, In 2015, they win 11 – or I think 12 games. In 2016, they win 11 games. And then after that, the coach – Brom. Yeah. Brom, Brom. I actually don't know. if I've ever said his name out loud before, uh, but, but he moves on to, to Purdue because things are going so well at Western Kentucky. Obviously that's an upgrade at Purdue. He's also, I mean, it's crazy to call it very successful because I think he was, I can't remember if he was 29 and 27 or 27 and 29 to this point. But the, the guy who was there before him for four seasons was averaging barely two wins per season. And so the fact that in these, whatever, five years since, four years since, he's taken them to the point where, what, they won eight games this season in the Big Ten? Hey, that's a good coach. That's somebody who made it work at Western Kentucky. And because he was able to do that, Purdue said, we'll bet on him. And the bet made sense. And the bet worked out because he's a good coach. Now, when... Mike Sanford was the head coach at Western Kentucky. Obviously things are much worse. He won nine games and they'd won more games than that in each of the two seasons before. But also if you're expecting him to do the same thing as the guy who is now being fairly successful at Purdue, I mean, for Purdue standards, he's very successful in general. He's been fairly successful. Well then why would that guy be your offensive coordinator? You know, like if, if, if he was able to do the exact same things at Western Kentucky, then he would probably be at some big tent. He, he might be where Mel Tucker is for all we know. Um, so again, there's a reason why he's a coordinator. He's a reason. There's a reason why he's attainable. Is it ideal to see that on the resume that, that Western Kentucky took a step back? Absolutely not. Um, is it ideal to see that, Utah State was putting up over 40 points per game, I think 45 points per game, second best in the country before he took over. And in the one season as offensive coordinator, the, the I think they dropped under 30 points per game, wound up being fairly average in terms of the entire country. No, it's not what you want to see. And again, you can make excuses, but it's, it's kind of tough in that situation because Jordan Love, who you'll remember is a first-round draft pick, went to the Packers, kind of biding his time now until Aaron Rodgers is gone. Well, that was his senior season. His senior season was the one year that Mike Sanford was there, and he disappointed. And, I mean, that that blame kind of falls on the coach because that's the way this works. And still, though, he was able to get the opportunity to go coach at Minnesota because P.J. Flex saw something in him or knew of him. I don't know what the story is there. But it worked out and I'm guessing that there was a reason, you know, even if it was disappointing numbers wise at Utah State and they didn't win as many games as they'd like and whatever. For some reason, P.J. Fleck, who is a good coach, said, I want you to be my offensive coordinator. You know, you'll you'll see things going around on Twitter about how he's struggled at all these different stops. Yeah, there's definitely numbers out there that say he has really struggled for the most part at the various places he's been. Um, You know, though, there's a really great year at Notre Dame. There was, uh, I mean, again, you can make excuses if you want to. Boise State, it's the first year with a new head coach with Chris Peterson gone. There's a big change. Western Kentucky struggled. We went through that. Utah State, he struggled. Uh, Still wound up getting promoted to Minnesota. Um, At Minnesota, it's not like things were all that bad. You know, that was one of the best running attacks in the country, and even even this season, his second and final season, it's not like they were horrible. I mean, you guys saw firsthand what they looked like. Um, in terms of total yardage on offense, I think they were like eighth, eighth out of 14 teams in the Big Ten. Um, that, that one I'm not sure about. The ones I'm more sure about, though... Um, I should probably just pull up the thing I wrote. If you guys want a more condensed version of this instead of my rambling thoughts, go to the DMVR.com and check it out for yourself. Uh, that's the best way to do that. Um, but at Minnesota, there we go. Wow, that was really hard to find. Um, like I said, just below average in the Big Ten in yards per game, but they were top three in rushing yards per game in the Big Ten um, out of 14 teams again. Um, In passing yards per game, they're actually second to last, but they threw 144 passes all season. Think about that. It's a 12-game season, and they threw 144 passes. They just didn't throw the ball that much, and actually their yards per attempt, 8.2 yards per attempt, were the fifth most in uh, the Big Ten, which, again, isn't like groundbreaking. Congrats, you're almost in the top third. But when you factor in... It's Minnesota and not Ohio State, Michigan, Wisconsin, who I guess doesn't really throw all that much anyway. Um, Michigan State, Iowa, who again also doesn't isn't known for the passing offense. But there's some really good teams there, and he got fired for this performance, which I don't know what is going on. And you know if we're going to say hey something happened at Utah State and it didn't go well, but also for some reason he was able to to turn that into a better job. If we're giving him credit for that, we got bashing for losing his job, even when maybe the numbers weren't quite so bad. Um, so there you go. So there's, I feel like, kind of the wrap up. There's why people are upset, I think. Um, and uh, let's let's take this moment and again try to uh, talk you guys off the ledge a little bit. Uh, and then after that, we'll dig in more depth into what he actually runs. Um, which is a tough question because obviously like PJ Fleck runs PJ Fleck's offense. And it is very well known that that is the case. And his offense is a very unique one and all of those sorts of things. So we'll get into all that in a second, but here's what I would say. He is 39. He was a head coach at 34. You don't see many FBS head coaches at age 34. It's incredibly rare and it obviously didn't go well, but also, can you is does that mean he's doomed? Does that mean that when he's a 55 year old coach, he's not going to be a, a decent coach, somebody who people want? Doesn't mean that he's not even going to be a head coach, in my opinion. I think that there's so many things that happen early on. I mean, you look at Josh McDaniels in Denver. Josh McDaniels was about the same age when he was the Broncos' coach, and that was a complete shit show. He could not have been any worse. He could not have been any worse. The the trades he made, literally trading a second round pick or a first round pick for a second round pick, using that second round pick on a player who, I think he traded for a seventh round pick one year later. Like you can take any little decision he made and just follow it through and just be like, holy cow, that man was terrible. Look what he's doing with Mac Jones as the Patriots offensive coordinator though. And you're crazy if you think he's not going to get another chance to be a head coach at some point. Thirty-four is really young, and that doesn't mean that you totally forget everything that happened. But you have to remember when he got that job at thirty-four, he was seen as one of the big-time up-and-comers. And things went a little bit sideways for a couple years, and then things went a little bit forward for a couple years, and then he got sideways again, and, and all of that sort of stuff. But you have to remember what was thought of this guy a few years ago. And I get that things change and that's not where we are now. But the fact that he's only 39, hey, he is a third of the way through his coaching career. And there is a lot of this story still to write. And Carl Durrell, who has been around the game a lot, sees something from him. Also, you think about all the different coaches he's worked with. And obviously, I mean, we've named most of them, but... but you have to remember that those early stops, what, he was at Notre Dame before he got the job at Western Kentucky. Well, that was before he'd actually worked with PJ Fleck. And I I'm we if you heard yesterday, you know that I'm a football nerd. I uh I really like thinking about all the different ways that you can run an offense and I really appreciate the ones that are not super vanilla and boring and the same thing that 90 to 95% of the teams run. I love the triple option. I enjoy the air raid, although I'm a triple option guy and I feel like there's a little bit of a rivalry there and so I have some a mixed feeling because of that. Um, what PJ Fleck does with those RPOs is a lot of fun and it's really creative and to be honest, it's a little bit gimmicky. And I think that there is a ceiling to what you can do when you're that focused on those RPOs. Um, at the same time, though, having a coach who comes from that system and also has an extensive background in pro-style sorts of offenses, power-running pro-style offenses, spending a year or two under P.J. Fleck running that offense, that is something I'd love. And it, and honestly, like if you were to ask me, just in generic terms, you know, you have somebody who who's a young coach. He's been working five, ten years, whatever, in the power running pro style offenses, two tight ends, all that sort of stuff. What do you want him to do? PJ Flex like spread RPO thing is. It's not, spread might not even be fair. There's spread concepts. There's pro style concepts. There's power. There's all sorts of stuff. Um, but adding that into the other stuff is really intriguing to me. And I think that a lot of what P.J. Fleck does is stuff that football coaches pay attention to. You know, if if you're Andy Reid and you run the Chiefs offense like you run the Chiefs offense, you're always going to have an eye on P.J. Fleck because he has created so many of these different RPOs and all the different varieties and taking them from, you know, if, if you play Madden, for example, you try to run an RPO, there's like two different ones. There's, and you can change up the running scheme with them, but there's like old bubble RPO, there's a slant RPO. What PJ Fleck does is more complicated. There's more downfield sorts of throws um, and and multiple route combinations and and those sorts of things that that add a bunch of variety. And when you throw that in with what the the early background was for uh, Mike Samford. I th- I think that you could see how those two concepts could work really well together and turn into a good offense. And you could also see how any offense would blow up in your face and all that sort of stuff. But but I'd, again, I didn't want to get into the football stuff this early. The point is though, he's a young coach and what he was at Western Kentucky is not what he is now, and what he was at Utah State is not what he is now, and what he was at Minnesota, well, some of it might be what he is now, but hey, he's about to spend time with Carl Durrell and whoever else is on this staff, and, and things are going to grow and evolve over the course of the next six or eight months or whatever it is before there's another football game. And in that time, these guys got to figure out what different pieces to work together to make something happen. And again, if you if you bash a coach early, there's a good chance that's going to come back to bite you. I mean, not that like Bill Belichick is the rule or Nick Saban had some early struggles. It's not like he was the rule there. There's a bunch of guys who have struggled early in their careers and still had it work out. And a lot of them struggled a lot more than Mike Sanford has um, except for that Western Kentucky stint. That was kind of ugly. Um, so there you go. There's a, a combination of some background on this man And uh, why maybe it isn't quite so bad. Again, I'm not saying, like, this is a home run hire. Man, did they really nail this one. Oh, boy, they they better hold on. They better start paying him now because two years from now, he's going to be a head coach at Notre Dame or whatever. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is he's a good coach. He's a coach who has a solid resume. He's a coach who has a bunch of experience. He's a coach who a lot of guys think is an up-and-comer. And And am I saying that, does this exceed or fall short of my expectations? Honestly, like, it's been a whirlwind of of four hours, and so I'm not sure I really want to commit one way or the other. I'd say he falls short, but I wouldn't say he falls so far short that I need to burn the internet down, uh, which is a feeling that it does seem like some of you have. Um, There you go. There's, a, there's that part of things, and we'll dig in more with what this is going to look like football-wise. And specifically, not just like in broad terms, like, huh, what does it look like when you merge power running with RPOs, with deep shots? But, but what does it mean with Colorado's specific personnel and where they are right now as a program? First, though, need to remind you guys about my best friend's DraftKings Sportsbook. Uh, DraftKings Sportsbook is seriously incredible they're they make you rich is what they do. Uh, you can bet on just about anything. We were talking today on that betting show. Apparently you can bet on the FCS playoffs. Now I couldn't bet on the first few rounds when Montana was in it. Uh, damn those James Madison Dukes for, uh, for knocking the quarterback out in the first quarter. But that that was two weeks ago. And we don't need to go down that tangent point is I'm excited to bet. Actually, I'm betting on James Madison this week, but not next week. I will not bet on them next week. Um, so much to bet on, um, so much to bet on. I wish we could bet on this Colorado women's basketball game tonight. That was uh, that was a fun one, and we've talked about this before. It's kind of a cupcake schedule that the Buffs have. You know, they've been undefeated at this point in the season before, but ten and is always going to feel pretty good, and that's where they're at right now after that win over SMU. Back to DraftKings though, if you bet one dollar this week on any team to score you can win $100 in free bets it's that simple all you gotta do is bet on a team to score and if they score you get your $100 in free bets it's that simple it's any NFL game all you gotta do is download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now use the promo code DMVR and bet $1 on any team to score and you'll pick up $100 in free bets if that happens so if they score, you score. With promo code DMVR this week at DraftKings Sportsbook. An official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older. Colorado only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. And real quick. uh, DraftKings pick of the week. Broncos. Favored by three against the Bengals this week. We're going Broncos. They're going to get it done. They're going to the playoffs. Also. Sexy Pizza. So we have Sexy Pizza at every Broncos tailgate. Uh, If you guys haven't been to one of those, it's a lot of fun. Um, It's right outside the stadium, obviously. That's how tailgates work. We've got all sorts of games and pizza and beer. And the pizza is Sexy Pizza, and I eat a lot of it. It is so good. It's a local company. They've been in Denver for 13 years. Uh, it's hand-tossed deck oven pizza. They make the dough from scratch every single morning. Uh, they have all sorts of different toppings. They've got Philanthropies, which is specialty pizzas. And when you buy one of those, they donate the money to uh, a, a nonprofit in Colorado. So it's a really cool program that they have there. And if you guys want to check it out, go to www.sexy.pizza um, and and. Check out what they have. They have 12-inch, 16-inch, 18-inch crusts. Um, they've got all sorts of different sides. They've got garlic knots. They've got wings. They've got desserts. They've got vegan options. They've got a 12-inch gluten-free crust. You can't miss. It's all so good. So go to one of their four Denver locations in Capitol Hill, Old South Pearl, Jefferson Park, Park Hill. And they've actually got a new one coming in Trinidad, Colorado soon. So, so make sure you get your hands on it. It's Sexy Pizza. It's incredible. All right. So we dug in a little bit deeper than I wanted on the football talk earlier. But here's what this looks like. This is, like I said, a power running scheme. Um, And the idea is that it's downhill. I was actually surprised how much zone running they have. I want to say it was something like 270 snaps of power runs, gap runs, um, and about 250 snaps of zone runs. So there was actually a lot more zone last year. At uh, Wisconsin than I would have guessed, um, but still the the base concept is that you get these guys on the move, your big offensive lineman on the move, you you help set them up with angles, and it's something that we've talked about a lot with Matt McChesney on this podcast, who will be on early next week. Um, but it's really easy when you talk about creativity on the offensive side of the ball to think about downfield passes and different route combinations and what the motions look like and all those sorts of things. But what people forget, or honestly what I think is that they just get bored of, is creativity in the running game, knowing how to set your opponent up, understanding how to to leverage your offensive line against the defensive front. All these little things that, to be frank, Darren Cheverini was not good at. You need that. You need to have that. And again, when so much of the noticeable innovation is in the passing game where you have like, oh, look at this bubble screen. Look at how this sets up. Oh, look, Travis Kelsey started here, went over there. And all of a sudden, all the offensive line went from like there's so much of that sort of thing that the shovel passes and all that. And that, that innovation is good, too. And it can help you win games for sure. But. Offensive line play and understanding how to use your your linemen well is I mean, it's it's a seriously underrated part of the game at this point. And that's, in my opinion, the most exciting part of bringing in somebody like Mike Sanford. Because, again, that's something that Stanford is really, really, really good at. And maybe they've gotten a little bit worse in the last couple of years, whatever. But back when they were doing what they were doing in the past, you know, back when Mike Sanford, he actually recruited Mich- or Christian McCaffrey. That was, that was him that did that. And uh, you know, in the three years he was there, their worst postseason ranking was number 11 in the country. Like those are some really good teams and they were really good because they knew how to use the running game. And, and again, it's might not be sexy. It's not like having a receiver jump up and catch one handed passes in the back of the end zone. But that is a great start to any offense. And that's something that's in his background. You know, he, he did it at Stanford. He did it at Notre Dame. Um, Boise State was very similar to that as well. Um, more recently, though, actually ever since he was a head coach, and I'd be curious to see if this is something that he did intentionally, he spent more time in some spread offenses at Utah State, and we'll get to Miso. Miso is tough to classify. So Utah State is more more spread, like I said, um, but it's kind of the power spread type. Um, so it's a lot of the power running, but they're doing it out of the shotgun. And so you have that in there too. And with Minnesota, obviously, a lot of it is out of the shotgun. Uh, it's the RPOs out of the shotgun specifically that are notable. I wonder, like, let's just say that Mike Sanford gets a head coaching job and he gets to do everything that he wants to do offensively. I wonder what that offense looks like at this point. I still do think that, you know, with what he did at Minnesota and what he's done in the past, a lot of it is going to be power running, you know, jumbo sets, extra linemen on the field, those sorts of things. But I do wonder how much he would incorporate of his own free will um, from these last couple of years. When you mix in Carl Durrell, who wants he's, – he's more of a pass-first type of coach, um, which is – it's interesting that people don't really see him that way, and I don't know why. And probably because of the formations he, he used in the past and used, honestly, not enough this year, but some of those heavier sets. I think that that is going to be what pulls – mike sanford toward the passing game toward some of those spread things toward using more of what he learned from pj fleck again sanford might be like oh wow this is this is incredible we should have been doing this all along who knows but just if i were to guess i would say that that's kind of the dynamic that sanford is doing a bunch of the running game sort of thing uh, with the rpos being a part of the running game that's typically how coaches see that um and then carl is doing more work on the passing side. Now, he was really hands-off in the past. That offense we saw last year was a lot of what Darren Cheverini wanted to do, and in my opinion, not enough of what Carl Durrell wanted to do. Um, so will he be more hands-on this time around? Will he not? Who knows? But th- if I had to take a stab at the dynamic, that's that's my stab. Now, obviously, the elephant in the room is that you want to run the ball a lot, but this offensive line was Honestly, straight-up garbage last year. They had two good games in the entire season, and those two games are the first two games where William Vallejos was the coach. And you saw him play a little bit better in those last couple games as well, but it was a lot closer to most of the season than it was for that two-week stretch. Um, Is it dangerous to try to run the ball the way that I think they're going to try to run the ball when that is your situation up front? Obviously, yes. But here is my counter. And that is this Darren Chevroni was not somebody who has a lot of experience running the running game. Somebody who I don't, I would say he didn't put that offensive line in a position to succeed. And obviously, there's bad coaching from the offensive line coach and all that sort of stuff, too. But I think that understanding what you're good at, building an identity again, there's a creativity that you need there. For that to be successful, you can't just say, "Okay, we've got this awesome play. We got two guys crossing the middle of the field. We got one guy sneaking in behind. He's just gonna sit right behind. Linebacker's are gonna part, gonna be wide open. We're gonna do that, and then we're gonna have um, this whatever Travis Kelsey shovel pass type of play. Nobody's gonna see it coming. And then after that, we'll line up and we'll run the ball. And then we'll get back to no. That's not how it works. You need to have that same level of thought in running the ball. And when you don't have it, you're not going to succeed." And that's not to put all of the struggles on that lack of creativity, but I think that when you bring somebody in who understands what he wants and understands how he wants his guards to pull and where he wants their hands to be and, and how long they wait. Now, all, all these different little pieces, all these all the minutiae that the last staff did not, or Mitch Rodriguez and Darren Chevrini did not care about, when you have that and... you're just not going to be able to to get all those details the way you need them. And so I think having this focus, having somebody who knows what he wants, who knows how to teach these things, hell, I wouldn't be surprised if Mike Sanford winds up being an offensive line coach. You know, it's something he hasn't done before. Um, He's coached tight ends and fullbacks and quarterbacks and running backs and receivers. He's coached everything but the offensive line. So I mean, it'd be a bit of an upset. But based on what we saw last year, he might just want to get his hands on those guys and say, here's what we're going to do. Um, again, maybe a little bit of a long shot, but I think that that is a consideration that will probably come up just because of this, the situation that they need to address the offensive line. And at the very least bringing in a good offensive line coach, somebody who knows what he's doing can coach that position. And then having an offensive coordinator who is helping, who's saying, this is what we want. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's why we're going to do it. That was one of the complaints I heard from those players. They didn't know why. They were just told, do this, do this, instead of, if you do this, then this will happen, and that's what we want, and that's why we do this. When you have that sort of leadership and really have two guys, I guess, kind of coaching that offensive line in a way, coaching that running game in a way, then you can be more successful in doing that. Um So again, is this... Is bringing in a run-first offensive coordinator going to fix the running game when it struggles because the offensive line stinks? No, not necessarily, but it can't hurt, right? I think we're all of the belief that if Colorado is going to compete in the Pac-12, it's going to be because they're more physical than their opponent. It's not going to be because they're recruiting better quarterbacks. It's not going to be because they're recruiting better receivers, recruiting even better running backs, because guess what? Southern California is packed with good quarterbacks, good receivers, and good running backs. And until something changes drastically, USC is going to get their pick of those guys, and the rest are going to probably decide between UCLA and Oregon. And it's more complicated than that. And Arizona State's in there. Maybe they're doing as much as UCLA. Who knows? But you're not going to be top dog in the hotbed of that sort of talent in this conference if you're Colorado unless you turn yourself into a perennial contender. I mean, in Oregon, honestly, who I'm not saying they're a perennial contender, but they've built themselves to the point where they can go in there and go toe to toe with USC when nobody really else can. If you're Colorado and you want to be successful, you pound the pretty boys, you go get big physical players. You understand that's your identity, that that's been your identity for the last 60 years and you lean into it. And that's what this move is. Um, because if you say our offensive line is bad, I'm not sure this is going to work. Well, if your offensive line is bad, nothing's going to work. And that's just the way this goes. And so you better figure out how you're going to fix it. And this in that regard kind of makes sense to me. Um, let's see what else. Um, it is a big play offense. You read up on, uh, Mike Sanford, what he really wants to do is break the big plays. He's of the belief that in modern football, that's what you need to win football games. The days of just grinding your way down the field and 20 play drives consistently or whatever, those are over in his mind. And for the most part, I agree with him. Um, he He's talked about needing the big plays, and then that's kind of what you do. Uh, it's not about, it's not run, run, run. It's run and then run and then, oh, look, they're creeping up hit him over the top and see if you can hit a long ball. Um, And that's a pretty big distinction, I think. Uh, On top of that, again, it's tough to say, how much does he pull from P.J. Fleck? How much does he pull from Brian Kelly? How much does he pull from David Shaw? But when we last saw him coordinated in offense, it was under P.J. Fleck at Minnesota. And what they did a lot there is, like I've said so many times, those RPOs. And what those do, it's basically like insurance, right? Where if you want to call a run play, then you call that run play and say, okay, this guy blocks, this guy, this guy blocks, this guy, these three block, these three, whatever. That's how this is going to work. Oh no. I really hope this guy doesn't blitz from this side, because if he does that, well, then all of a sudden we're kind of screwed. What you do is say, okay, so that guy does blitz. Let's run a receiver in right behind him. And, if he blitzes, guess what? Quarterback pulls the ball out, tosses it right over his head, and you've got completion. You probably gain more yards than you would running the ball. That is kind of the the idea behind the RPO. That's why coaches say that it's a running play, not a passing play. They use it as part of their running game um, because it's basically just insurance that if those guys overcommit in a way that we don't expect, well, guess what? We'll just hit you with this pass. And more often than not, that's kind of how that works. Um so you, you you bring in those concepts and then add to the fact that it isn't just a little slant behind this guy. It's let's run this deep crossing route or let's take this shot because it means we got one on one coverage with Brendan Rice or let's do whatever. And it's uh it's going to be it's going to be fun to watch because you can pull some big plays out of that. Again, that's something that Minnesota kind of specialized in. Um, The year that the offense was really good under Mike Sanford, well, that was the year that Rashad Bateman was there, Um, the first-round draft pick wide receiver who went to the Ravens, who was a first-round draft pick because he was potentially the fastest player in that draft. So when you have somebody like that and you're forcing them to overload the box because you're running the ball so well, and then all of a sudden you catch them slipping by sending one guy too many, well, somebody that fast is going to take advantage of it. And that's where some of those big plays come from. And I hope that we see that incorporated. One of the um, things and you'd have to imagine that it would out, be, right? Because he was just um, running that Since Shevereem left weeks is ago. Is that um, he wasn't, for the most part, or for most of the season, he wasn't letting um, Brendan Lewis change the running plays. So if Brendan Lewis is standing there on the center. He looks up and he's like, oh, we're going to run to the right because that's the play. We've got three blockers over there. They've got five defenders there. Well, the way that the offense or what he was told to do was just run the ball anyway. It sounds like maybe that got tweaked a little bit at the end of the season. I'm not sure, but it's not ideal. That's not something that's going to work out. And with those RPOs that Minnesota runs, those RPOs are based on the numbers. So you look over to the left and you've got three receivers and and two, two defensive backs where you're going to throw a little bubble screen. You're going to have like a little hitch and somebody run behind and an out route behind that. Like, You, you need to have those sorts of thoughts about how the numbers work. And that is another lesson from PJ Fleck, a lesson that I think is probably very valuable. Um, So I like that too. Um, I think those are most of my thoughts. Those are most of my thoughts on how this offense is going to work um RPOs I think I mentioned I like it because it simplifies things for Brendan Lewis a little bit who knows if he's actually going to be the starter but it can't hurt um to to simplify those reads and just make it very clear um yeah other note I guess is that he's he's known as a good recruiter and I'm not the recruiting type and so I don't I I'm not the expert here but in the press release that the Buffs sent out, they did note that, you know, uh, two top 15 recruiting classes at Notre Dame in his two years. Uh, when he was at Boise State, uh, they had the number one class in the Mountain West. Again, that's not a surprise. They, they should. Um, they had back to back top 20 classes at Stanford, including the number five group in the country, best in the Pac 12. Um, that was when he was rec- recruiting coordinator there. Um, 23 members of those two classes were in the top 25 nationally um, at their positions, and they had six five stars, sixteen four stars. I mean that's that's a great recruiting background for sure. Um, Yeah, recruited Christian McCaffrey, like we said, Ian Book. um, Who else? uh, Andrew Luck was, I guess Andrew Luck wasn't his, but he helped on that one. He was the recruiting coordinator, I guess, for that one. Um, Brett Rippin. So there you go. I know, I and mean, we've talked about this too. I'd, I i did not need recruiting out of this spot, but for those of you who are big recruiting guys, there you go. Hey, there's, there's a happy note to end this on. Um, that's going to do it. We'll dig in more. I'm going to watch more of this guy and see what's going on. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I get it. if you're not super fired up. I also think that you can look through and say, hey, he's a 39-year-old coach who has a pretty extensive resume. Uh, he's gotten a lot of promotions. He's When he's left, for the most part, it's been leaving for a better job, which is something you want to see. I mean, a couple of exceptions to that, but not many. It is what it is. And the truth is, it doesn't matter what people think. It matters what happens. Um, you know, Brendan Rice. Actually, let's, let's run through some of these tweets because some of these buffaloes have been on one um, on Twitter tonight, which is always fun to see. In particular, we've heard a lot from Makai Blackman. We've heard a lot from Brendan Rice and Jarek Broussard as well. Um, let's see. Here's one from Makai Blackman. I hope this man shakes the room and makes everybody eat their words. Um, somebody, um, oh, Brendan Rice tweeted a couple laughing emojis and said, buff fans are hilarious. And, uh, somebody responded actually booter booty eater 83. I can't just say somebody with a name like that said, no way you're getting upset with us because we want to see you with a wide receiver coach who knows what he's doing. And one who's going to utilize you other than them. whatever. Um, and Brendan responded to that and said, I'm far from upset with y'all. I love the emotion from the fan base. There you go. Um, you know, JT Shrout throwing some positivity out there. Um, Brendan saying Jarek's about to rush for a million yards. Jarek's saying that Brendan's about to, to catch a million yards. Owen McCown is pretty fired up. Um, Kai Blackman saying everybody's a critic about things they know nothing about. Hey, you love to see it. You love to see it. And, there you go. If they're happy, how can you not be happy? That's going to do it for today. We'll dig back in. Uh, we've got the basketball game tomorrow, so I'm not sure what these next podcasts will look like, but I can imagine we'll be talking quite a bit about Mike Sanford going forward. So look forward to that. Uh, look forward to, uh, the discourse because boy is discourse fun. Um, see you guys later.